This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hi and welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9. My name is Louise and I'm an alcoholic. The purpose of this show is to increase public awareness of Alcoholics Anonymous as an effective means of recovery from the disease of alcoholism. Our show has two parts. First, we'll talk a bit about alcoholism, what it is and what AA can do to help. Then we'll interview a recovering alcoholic who is an active member of AA. I'm now going to ask our guests to read the AA preamble, which is read at the start of every AA meeting. Kia ora, my name's Rosalie, I'm an alcoholic. The AA preamble. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership, We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Thanks, Rosalie. So what is alcoholism? Alcoholism is a disease, not a disgrace. There's no shame in having an illness or a disease. An unusual feature of this disease is that it will do whatever it can to convince you that you do not have it. However, once it has a hold of you, the progression of symptoms is like the classic disease model, and the victim is as helpless as a sufferer of cancer. If you are an alcoholic, you are at the beginning of a long road that usually ends in one of three places, prisons, institutions or death. If you think this sounds dramatic, we can assure you that our collective experience has shown this to be true. The challenge is to convince the alcoholic to admit that they need help and become willing to seek it. Denial is a major symptom of alcoholism. The alcoholic is often the last one to recognise it and admit that they have it. Our definition of alcoholism is it is an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. The allergy is the physical aspect of the disease. After having the first drink, the phenomenon of craving develops and we lose control over when we will stop drinking. The old saying is one is too many and a thousand is never enough. And yet, because of the obsession of the mind, the mental aspect of the disease, the alcoholic is compelled to keep picking up the first drink. And this is what makes us powerless. We often hear from sober alcoholics that many doubted whether life could be fun without alcohol. Fortunately, those same people report that their lives have improved dramatically since they became sober. The 12-step program of recovery, which is discussed at meetings and which is outlined in the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book, is how we get sober and maintain our sobriety one day at a time. This program has a proven track record of helping otherwise hopeless alcoholics to achieve long-term sobriety and recovery. It has taught us how to enjoy life sober. 
Okay, for anyone who has just joined us, you're listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9. And we're just about to interview an AA member who's going to share their experience with alcoholism. So let's meet our guest, Rosalie. Welcome. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm, I'm Rosalie and I'm an alcoholic. Welcome. And would you like to tell us a little bit about who you are? Um, how, how old are you? I'm 62 this year. And how long have you been sober? I've been sober um, 17 years and eight months. Wonderful. And um, are you, do you work? Yep, I, I have a great I have a great job. I'm really lucky. Excellent, yeah. wonderful. And um, family, married, children. I have a daughter, a grown daughter, and a grandson. And oh, I'm really fortunate to have marvelous um, sisters and a brother. And mm. excellent. Um, so tell us a little bit about your childhood. What was it like growing up? Well, I'm the eldest of four children. And both my parents were the eldest children. And it, it wasn't good. Growing up wasn't good uh, from the get-go. Um, and it just really didn't get much better. Um, a lot of violence, a lot of poverty, um, a lot of being left. Um, and I look at children today and, and I think that people want them to talk about what's going on at home. I would never have talked about what was going on at home. No one tells. You don't tell. You just don't tell what's going on at home. And so alcoholism was was around. It was a a part Mm -hmm. of your growing Mm -hmm. up. Yeah, so my my father was definitely alcoholic. He was also a gambler. Mm -hmm. And um, so my mum needed to work. Mm -hmm. Um, My mum worked eventually... So from maybe from when I was 8 to 12, she worked at night. So she would leave at 10 o'clock on a bike or a bus to go to work. Mm. And then we would, I, would, I would wait for my father to come home. Wow, okay. So a lot of time left to your own devices. Mm. And um, so the eldest of four. Yeah, so my job was to look after the children and their job was to do what I told them. Mm. So I was mm. a terrible mother at 8 and I was a worse mother at 9 and 10. And it left them with, um, you know, stories of their own. Mm, for sure, for um, sure. Which I really had no understanding of. I was consumed with what I needed to do and what I was responsible for. And um, we had such a lot of fear that it was really about getting through the day. Mm. My father was a person who, when it was put to him that he um, behaved badly and only beat my mother when he drank. He decided that the best thing to do was get everybody up on Sunday morning when he was sober and beat her then so that we could Mm. all see that it wasn't anything to do with alcohol Mm. at all. Mm. So it was very, um, he he had his own story, and for a long time I was very um, affected by, and I still am affected Mm. by his story, but not to the same degree that I used to be. Mm. And um, he had his own tragic story, and... Um, he um, he never got any help. He died angry. He died alcoholic, and he mm. died more or less alone. One person he found a, a nice, kind woman to look after him, and I'm forever grateful to yeah. her for wow. doing that because we certainly would not have. Mm. Mm. And um, for me, his gift to me ultimately, uh, when I started later to question my drinking. He was sort of my billboard down mm. the road. Okay. That 
um, if you continue, mm. Rosalie, this is your destiny. Mm. So, so let's talk a little bit about then your drinking. How how did it start? Well, my drinking started with my dad putting. Um, well, my drinking started when I was very before I was one years old, actually, on the bar, in the pub with a with a shandy. And I remember it quite distinctly, having the drink, and then and I must have screwed up my face because all the men in the bar laughed out loud, and then I had another drink. Wow. And um, the next time that I really clearly remember drinking is when my dad would put um, whiskey in my um, coffee and before or chocolate before I went to, to, to um, swim competitively. So he would do – I'd get really topped up nicely – and that was his way of helping me when I was 11 and 12 oh, wow. years old. Needless to say, my swimming career didn't really take off. Um, <laughs> and then my next real memories of um, drinking independently on my own was around about 14, 15. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually remember bunking off school one day with some um, friends and um, – we went into the bar tavern and I um, asked the guy behind the bar for a jug and six glasses and he put an empty jug and six glasses on the bar and just looked at me and I just dead set said, N- and can you fill that please? As a 14 year old. Mm-hmm, and he did. Mm. Um, so I spent a lot of time bunking off school. There was friends of ours, had, well, I don't know if they were friends, but there were boys who didn't have a mother. We'd go to their flat and drink all day. And, mm. Um, I would always drink to blackout. That was my go-to. I mm-hmm. never liked the taste, Mm-mm. and I liked the effect. And I couldn't have told you that at the time. Wow. And so did that? Um, so as you progressed through your teens into early adulthood, um, what was your drinking like then? Still drinking to blackout. Um, I didn't. I had a job. I had a little job. Um, I found boys who had money and cars, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know, it's dangerous for girls to drink to blackout, and mm. um, there were severe consequences. Mm. And danger was a, a magnet to me as well. I Interesting. loved it. Alcohol and danger, and and I think part of it came from yeah, yeah. You know, fear. I like Shh. I like the danger. Sure. Um, but then there was also this. Um, the next consequence of that was that my parents, um, when they were finally able to separate. Um, there was a threat that if we behaved too badly, then my father would get custody of us. And um, so we had to just behave but just stay just above the line. Mm, so we never mm. actually. So there was, there was that little moderator until my the youngest child was old enough to um, not be taken. So there was a real, a little handbrake on my drinking. Mm. Um, and I turned into what, um, a, what, we, what I now know to be a binge drinker. Okay. So I would have, um, once I started drinking, I wouldn't stop till I fell down. I would relentlessly fall under the wrong people Mm -hmm. and there would be trouble and I'd have to move on and get new friends in a new group or a new city or a new town or whatever it was. And um, I think there may have been one or two times when I tried to control my drinking, Mm. but it was a little, it was... It wasn't worth it. It's not worth it. And, and you talk that you drank to blackout, but um, the moment, you know, the, the time that you would, you know, take a drink and, t- uh, you know, prior to blanking, blacking out, 
What did alcohol do for you? Well, again, I couldn't have told you at the time. It was just the way I drank. If there was a mini tanker, it was it was good. It, I didn't. It wasn't thrilling. It was safe. Mm. So there was just a sense of safety. Um, it's not until I got into AA and I started listening to um, stories about alcoholism that I came to put words to my experience as a drinker. And I never really joined the dots. I was a binge drinker until um, my early 40s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I could stop drinking for periods of time, but I could never stay stopped. Sure. That was my thing. I just couldn't stay stopped. And in fact, I didn't really want to. I thought at one point when I was it. I, one of my sisters was getting married and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm always the boss of everything. You know, I'll, I won't be the boss. And so I didn't, uh, I wasn't the boss of, and I didn't arrange her marriage and I didn't solve all her problems. I let her have her own dress and her own everything. But I was absolutely paralytic, drunk. Mm. So I thought, gosh, I've got a social problem. Mm. Uh- and I guess that's the, 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 the next question I have is around the consequences of your drinking. You know, um, what did it do to your relationships with your family, with your friends, people in your life? Um, I was always given a lot of rope by my mother because of my childhood story. Um, she was very, um, she the least critical and most accommodating. Mm. Mm. Um, my... Um, I became the martyr in my family and I was always really smart and um, knew the answers to everything. So it was very controlling. If I'm not drinking, I'm controlling. Um, Relationships, I don't know what they are. Mm. They are a giddy round of, um, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places. Um, I certainly wasn't particularly interested in having relationships with other, with alcoholic men. Mm -hmm. Um, I really liked a guy who would put up with my Mm. carry on, who had a nice car tank full of petrol, $10 in his pocket, and mm. would always come and pick me up when I wanted him to. Mm. And um, I was not a good girlfriend at all. And um, other consequences, you know, did you have any trouble with the law? No, I don't want to go. I, my great aversion is being locked in or locked out. Right. Or do anything not to be locked in or locked out. Right. And I was raised in I'm in my 60s now, so I lived in a world where there was lots of employment and the world was big and no one talked about anybody instantly. It took a while for the news to get round. Sure. So I could leave a job, leave town, new friends. I could walk out of a job at 9 o'clock in the morning and get one on the way home. Right. So the consequences didn't feel strong until... I, later on, um, so um, I think I graduated from Teachers College in 2000 mm-hmm. and I got my first teaching job and I drank my way out of that in three years. Wow. And not likely to get another one because your first job, if you're not going to get a reference from your first job, was nothing. Um, you know, I was just alone, mm. you know. Once I started, I hadn't had a drink and while I was at um, Teachers College. Um, I knew that I had some kind of an issue with socialising and I had, to, I had to actually, I mean, I'd hardly been to school. So surviving Teachers College, I, I needed all my wits about me all the time. Mm. And um, I had to be driven and focused. And I was. And did you at any point uh, think this is not, this is not normal? And did you try to stop? 
No. No? No. You find I found people where it was normal. Between teachers' college and teenage years, I found this marvellous thing, and it's called um, a live-in hotel. And you can go and work there. <laughs> and they give you a room, and they give you a uniform, and they ch- give you linen and food, and all you have to do is turn up for an eight-hour shift. You live miles away from anyone. Mm. But they pay you money. And there's a bar that's open all the time. <laughs> there's toilets everywhere. So you don't throw up on the side <laughs> of the road. You can shut a door. It's fabulous. And there are always people to party with. And that was mostly, that would be my 20s. Mm-hmm. And then in my 30s, I got into um, social justice. And so I was um, had um, justifiable anger, mm. I, you know, if the government. And I was just... Well, I wasn't. If I wasn't drinking, I was angry mm. and just pushing. It was marvelous. So tell me, you know, what was it that you know? Describe your rock bottom, or what was it that brought you into recovery? Well, the teaching job that I drank myself out of, I had. I couldn't figure out how that had happened because I'd worked really hard. I'd worked hard to get there, and I'd worked hard in the job, and I couldn't figure out. What had gone wrong? I just couldn't put it together. I was really lucky. I got um, a job for a year um, and, uh, uh, working for an NGO, and I was so I could pay the mortgage. And then I realised that the thing that I needed to do was go to Australia. So I left my um, 16-year-old in a wildly inappropriate flat mm-hmm. and moved to Australia. And it wasn't until I was in the back of nowhere with no air conditioning, no friends, and no one to drink with that I thought, what? have I done? How could I have worked so hard for so long to have a good life and be here alone? Mm. And I rang my sister and she said, you know, it's a shame you're not an alcoholic because if you were, there'd be a solution. And how did that make you feel? Well, first of all, I wanted to punch her in the face. And second of all, I was um, actually... They talk about, I've learned since, beaten into a state of reasonableness. And I listened. And she said, just go to a meeting. Okay. Go to AA. Just go there. And you went to the meeting? I did, because I was utterly desperate. I was really desperate. I'd lost everything. And there was no one. And um, describe what that first meeting was like. Um, I I remember that there were people outside smoking and they shook my hand and they welcomed me in. There was a table and were, we were all given these books to read out of and I read out of a book and I just cried my way through the whole hour mm. and um, they invited me to have coffee with them afterward and then I went back the next day. And you went and, back? Yeah, so I just went back every day. This The other thing that happened to me was I hadn't had a drink for quite a while at that point. Okay. And I was going... The I was... The world was tilting, and I was in fear of having a psychotic episode. Right. So your emotional state, your mental state, in between the drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it had been a long time. Was severely mm-hmm. affected. Yeah, so when I don't drink, I'm either angry, controlling, or going crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Life doesn't get better when I don't drink. And um, so let's talk about then um, how... You continued from that first first or second meeting. Mm-hmm. You continued to, to go to meetings. I did. I identified with the stories of the people. So I, what I decided was if I go, 
um, don't act crazy for 23 hours. Go to the meeting for one hour every day. Just do that. Um, and I identified with the way people were sharing and they had visited institutions and prisons mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they were laughing and there were these two um, notices on the wall. One was the steps and one were the traditions and it appeared to me that they had followed this plan for living, which I had never had, and somehow they weren't drinking and they were happy. So there's a thing. So I just went back and I wasn't going insane in the meantime. And my so daughter that was attractive to you and so you you yep. keep going back. Because they talked about the fear, they talked about the anger, they talked about um, just, they talked about things like, I want it and I want it now. I want more than you. I want it bigger. I want it faster. Mm. I want her until I get her and then she doesn't look so great anymore. And all of that stuff is the way I think and feel. Mm. So I identified with that, the irritability and the um, ingratitude of the alcoholic, the self-centered need for more now and um so describe you know what are some of the things that are you know that you've done in times when it's you know not so great how have you managed to maintain your sobriety i packed up and i came home mm-hmm. and faced what i'd left mm-hmm. i got a sponsor got okay. a home group i um had two groups um, that I went to every week. One was a big book study and the other one was a 12 by 12, so I got into the literature. I have no natural self-discipline. I'm always motivated by pain and desperation Mm -hmm. and I knew I had to get into the literature and the meeting would do for me what I couldn't do for myself. I had to get a god and um, I had a group of drunks was my god, so people who were getting up and going to the meeting and were somehow managing to live happily and... um, have restoration of family and um, uh, restored um, financial situations Mm -hmm. by working the steps Mm -hmm. and not taking the first drink. And we talk about, so you just touched briefly on, on, you know, uh, God or or higher power. We talk about AA being a spiritual program, not a religious program. So what does that look like for you today? It has absolutely saved my life because church never, ever has addressed mm-hmm. my alcoholism. Mm-hmm. AA does, and it is a spiritual program in as much as it asks me to put myself to one side and think about um, what is the right and adult thing to do. And for me to be able to do that takes um, something out of this world mm-hmm. to happen. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that does um, work for me is to know that you've w- walked where I've walked Mm. And you can, if you can do it, okay, I'll do it. And if I can't do it, I can ring you up mm. and you'll just say, breathe. What's the right next thing to do? Your God is there. So describe your life today. How is, how is your life today? <laughs> um, these days, um, AA has taught me to um, live life on life's terms. Mm-hmm. So it's no garden of roses, let me tell you that. Mm-hmm. It is life on life's mm-hmm. terms. I have, um, um, my mum died of cancer when I was four years sober, so she um, took from five weeks from diagnosis to death, and I didn't need to have a drink. Um, I went to meetings, and the meetings came to me, the AA people came to me. And even when I didn't want to feel better, there were meetings that I needed to go to because I had a service position, Mm. so I'd turn up for that meeting. And so service has been important. Oh, service has been crucial absolutely crucial there is um, AA has um, 
taught me to be helpful mm. um, without counting, um, counting, without keeping score. Mm. AA has taught me that service is really the thing that will get me um, looking better to myself. Now, Rosalie, what would you recommend to someone who thinks they might have a problem? What are some of the things they could do or ask themselves? Um, I, I think that if you think you've got a problem or might have a problem, just go to six meetings and okay. just see what happens. Okay. Six. Just do that. Yeah. And if you're not an alcoholic, then, you know, it's only been six hours and, you you know, you can do something else to mm-hmm. help yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd say six. Be open-minded in the meetings. Listen for the similarities, mm. not the differences. And um, we, we Alcoholics Anonymous is there to help. It mm. helps to help me recover and to live sanely and alcohol-free and usefully mm. alcohol-free. Mm. They're not there to pay my mortgage. They're not <laughs> there to drive me around town or to give me another job. Mm. But they are there to show me how to live sober. And um, if you follow the advice, take the actions. Don't just think about them, but take the actions. Then life just gets good. I've been to America. I've driven a Mustang all around the South. <laughs> I have um, been in a m- meeting of 65,000 alcoholics oh saying the um, serenity prayer. I have um, had marvelous trips overseas. And every time I go, we make our plans and hand the outcome up to God. Wonderful. And uh, breathe our way through whatever happens next. Well, Rosalie, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. Thank you. It's been lovely to have you. So for our listeners, if you've related to anything that you've heard or would like some more information about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can look us up on the web at www.aa.org.nz or call us on 0800 AA Works. There are over 60 meetings a week in Canterbury, so it's likely there's one near you. Join us next week to hear from more AA members sharing their experiences. Our show airs every Monday at 5.30pm on Plains FM and repeats on Wednesday at 12.30pm. You can also find podcasts of our past shows on the Plains FM website at plainsfm.org.nz or you can download, subscribe and listen to podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. That brings us to the end of the show. Thank you for listening and remember, if you want to drink, that's your business. But if you want to stop, we can help. You don't have to do it alone. We will now close the show with a serenity prayer as we do in every AA meeting. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You've been listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show on Plains FM 96.9.